Well, I started off the Amazing Grace series with a golf club. I'm going to finish it with a baseball bat. Uh, This is a Mickey Mantle signed bat. Uh, At least it was until my kids rubbed off the signature, but you can almost see Mickey Mantle's signature right there. It's the real deal. Uh, Mickey Mantle, as some of you know, spent his entire career with the New York Yankees. Any Yankee fans in the house? Ushers, please escort them out the building. Uh, Keep your hands up if you're in the... Uh, But Mickey Mantle had uh, lots of streaks and slumps in the game of baseball and in life. Let me me define a few terms for you, for you non-baseball folks out there. A hitting streak is a good thing if you're a baseball player. A streak is when a player gets a hit to get on base game after game after game after game. Uh, The record for the hitting streak is held by... Joe DiMaggio, another Yankee, who in 1941 got a hit to get on base in 56 consecutive games. That's quite a streak. It's a good thing. But then there's the slump. The hitting slump is a bad thing if you're a player. A slump is when you fail to get a hit to get on base game after game after game. The record for the hitting slump is held by a guy named Craig Consell, who in 2011 went zero for 45. That's bad. Now, lots of times what happens in baseball is a player starts out on a streak and then ends up in a slump. And then either ends up back in the minor leagues or out of the game of baseball altogether. Happens all the time. Here's an example. Uh, Joe Charbonneau uh, is a great example of this. Uh, he's an eccentric kind of guy. He was known for opening beer bottles with his eye sockets and doing his own dental work, so he wasn't all there. But he was a good ball player. In 1980, his rookie season, Charbonneau hit 23 home runs, uh, won the American League Rookie of the Year award, uh, and Cleveland thought he was going to be the savior of the organization. Uh, They called him Super Joe. In 1980, he was great, on a streak. By 1984, just a few years later, Charbonneau was out of the game of baseball altogether. He went from streak to slump, back to the minors, then out of the game of baseball in just four years. Streak to slump, out of the game. Happens all the time in baseball. And it happens all the time in the church. You know anybody who was once on a spiritual streak, on fire for God, passionately in love with Him, and then something happens. They end up in some sort of slump, and they feel like their best days in Christ are behind them, not before them. Their love for God tapers off. They've lost their first love. You know someone like that? Are you someone like that? I know a guy. Early in his spiritual walk, he was on a streak, passionately in love with God. He was one of those guys who was crazy enough, I mean faithful enough, to do whatever God called him to do, regardless of the risk, regardless of the sacrifice. But then something happened. And his love tapered off. He ended up in a slump. And at first, he compromised in small ways. He sort of neglected his 
some of his work responsibilities. He used his power to serve himself. He, uh, he started to sort of coexist with his wife. He stopped praying. And when he stopped praying, the distance created the space for him to be disobedient in the most egregious ways. In the midst of his slump, this guy who was once on a spiritual streak committed adultery with a married woman. She got pregnant and then he committed murder to cover it up. Many of you know the guy I'm talking about. He's one of the so-called heroes of the biblical story. And his name is David. David came out of the box, spiritually speaking, batting a thousand. I mean, read 1 Samuel 17. David, a teenage boy, is on fire for God. He's facing a Goliath. And it's like he doesn't even see the size of the giant because he's too enamored with the size of God. He's got a one-track mind, David does. And that's God. David could see nothing but God. Yogi Berra, a comedic baseball guru, was once asked by a slumping player for advice on how to get out of the baseball slump. And Yogi Berra said in his comedic way, if you can see it, hit it. (laughs) Thanks, Captain Obvious. (laughs) David could see nothing but God. And he hit the ball out of the park every time, spiritually speaking. But then something happened. In 2 Samuel 5, at the age of just 30 years old, David became king. And on the pinnacle of success, complacency set in. It's like David outgrew his need for God. He had what I would call a a spiritual midlife crisis, a spiritual slump, if you will. And in the midst of his slump, David would discover that the biggest Goliath he will ever face is not Goliath. Not the Philistines, not King Saul, not the Ammonites. The biggest biggest Goliath David will ever face is David. And David nearly destroyed David. Every one of us probably has in the story of our lives, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad chapter that we would just like to rip out and throw away. David did too. His terrible, horrible, no good, very bad chapter is 2 Samuel chapter 11. You may want to turn there with me in your Bibles. 2 Samuel 11. Here's the slump. I'll just read verses 1 to 5. You can read the whole chapter some other time. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing This woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Skip down to verse 15. So David had committed adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba who was taking a bath. She's rightly named. And then she gets pregnant. And verse 15, David commits murder to cover it up. In it, he wrote David's writing to the commander, Joab, put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, out on the front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Boredom, lust, adultery, murder. And then at the very end of the chapter, here is the horrific headline hanging over David's head. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. How's that for a headline for a slumping player? But it started with boredom. It started with boredom. At the time when kings go off to war, David, the king, is sending out his troops and he's hanging out in the safety of the palace while his guys are fighting the battle. This is a big deal. Let's remember that David's spiritual gift was not singing in the choir or teaching second grade Sunday school class. David's spiritual gift was fighting. He was a warrior. Some of you have the same spiritual gift, by the way. Uh, He was a warrior. He was a fighter. Always looking for a fight. And the fact that David is not using his spiritual gift to serve the purposes of God, he's hanging out in the palace instead of going out to war, is indicative of his spiritual slump. He's bored with God and serving God. Bored in his boxers. Hanging out on the rooftop of the palace. Looking for something anything to make him feel again. He's looking for trouble and he finds it. What a tragedy. He was a rookie of the year in 1 Samuel 17. And now he's in a horrible slump spiritually. How does someone like David on a spiritual streak end up in a spiritual slump all of a sudden. It wasn't all of a sudden. David's slump did not start in 2 Samuel 11 with, with boredom and lust and adultery and murder. That's not where it started. It actually started in 2 Samuel 5 when David became king. Up until 2 Samuel 5 when David became king, there's this phrase that keeps getting repeated about David five times. Up until he became king, David inquired of the Lord. 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 And then he becomes king, and it's crickets. It's like he outgrew his need for God. And David discovered that a lack of inquiry leads to a lack of intimacy. The same is true in marriage. If you stop inquiring of your spouse, a lack of inquiry will lead to a lack of intimacy. I'm not talking about like shallow inquiry, like do these pants make me look frumpy. I'm talking about the real stuff, the stuff that matters. 
How are we doing as a couple? How can I love you better? A lack of inquiry leads to a lack of intimacy between David and God. And when David is distant from God, it's like God seems smaller than the Goliaths all around him. And distance from God creates the space for David and for us to be disobedient in the most egregious ways. When God is distant or we're distant, we can do the unthinkable. Stuff we never thought we would do, like David did. He's stuck in a slump. The question is, will he get out of it or will he like end up in minor league Christian living or godly living and or will he end up out of the game altogether? I wonder how many of us in this room are stuck in some sort of spiritual slump. I'm not asking if you love God. I'm not asking if you're saved. I'm asking, has your love for God plateaued? Many of us are no longer in the land of Egypt, the land of slavery, but let's be honest, spiritually speaking, we're not also in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land of freedom. We're stuck somewhere in between in the wilderness of the spiritual slump, no longer a slave, but not fully free. If I were to gauge, sort of survey our congregation and ask among the couple hundred of us, to rate our level of intimacy with Jesus Christ on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being really intimate, I would venture that 50% of us, half of us, would probably say, on a scale of 1 to 10, we're a 4 to 6. That's a slump. Every player worth their salt will scan the stat sheet. They won't let too much time go by without looking at their stats because the stats don't lie. And so they'll look at their last 10 or 15 or 20 at-bats. How many times did they strike out? How many times did they walk? How well did they hit the curveball? How well did they hit the fastball? What's their on-base percentage, their slugging percentage, their average? Christians have a stat sheet too. Every time we have a chance to love God or not love God in word, thought, or deed, that's the at-bat for the Christian. And we don't scan the stat sheet for the sake of guilty condemnation, but for gracious liberation, because until you see the slump and name the slump and admit the slump, you can't get out of the slump. So let's scan the stat sheet again. At bat for the Christian is every chance we are up at the plate with a chance to love God or not love God in word, thought, or deed. How did we do? The last time you were tempted to go places on the computer that you should not go, did you get a hit or strike out? Love God or not love God? The last time you had a chance to give your time and talents to someone in need, how did you do? Did you get a hit or 
strike out. Love God or not love God. The last time you had a chance to give generously to someone in need, to the purposes of God through the church, were you generous or greedy? Did you get a hit or strike out? Did you love God or not love God? The last time you heard a racist joke at the office, did you confront the stereotype or laugh at it? Get a hit or strike out. Love God or not love God. The last time you had a chance to use your words to build someone up or break someone down, did you get a hit or strike out? Love God or not love God. The last time you had a chance to forgive someone or retaliate against someone, did you get a hit or strike out? Love God or not love God. Who we become on the playing field of life, is determined by the accumulation of choices we make to love God or not love God in word, thought, or deed. Still not sure if you're in a slump? Here are some slump symptoms. If you find yourself reading the Bible less or not at all, because you deep down doubt that you will receive a word from the Lord, from the word of the Lord, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you find yourself praying less or not at all, because you are disappointed with God or believe he's disappointed with you, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you are dropping out of ministry because you don't feel affirmed or appreciated by people, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you find Christian fellowship more painful than productive, more like a root canal or a colonoscopy than a joy, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you find yourself looking for diversions and distractions, watching reruns of Law and Order and Duck Dynasty and if things are really bad, Downton Abbey, you may be in a spiritual slump. If you find yourself thinking about God less and fantasizing about sin more. You may be in a spiritual slump. If you find yourself in a slump, you know what it's like to be David. And you are in need, like David, of a force of grace outside of you to lift you out of the slump and put you back on a streak again. That's what David needed. And that's what David got. Right after that horrific headline hanging over David's head, uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It sounds like Albert Pujols slump, the most expensive in Major League Baseball history, or A-Rod slump killing the Yankees. And then you have that horrific headline over David's head. The thing he did displeased the Lord. But then there's a new chapter, chapter 12. This is one that God writes. David wrote 2 Samuel 11. God writes 2 Samuel 12. And after we read, David displeased the Lord, here's what we read next. 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. 
It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. This is creepy. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, my translation, you the man. (laughs) This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And all this, if it had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, he comes clean. Nine months after his sin, finally, he admits his sin, his slump. I used to think those words that start this new chapter, the Lord sent Nathan to David, I used to think of those words as more like vengeful. Like God sent Nathan to David to stick David's face in his vomit, to say to David, you're not going to get away with this, to punish David, to get even with David. But David was already a runaway train. He was already stuck in a slump. He was a dead man walking spiritually. The Lord sending Nathan to David may be one of the most gracious acts in the Old Testament. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What does God do? He doesn't hit him with a lightning bolt. He doesn't abandon him. He sends Nathan to David. These two verses together, the close of chapter 11, the beginning of a new chapter, chapter 12, are to me a great encapsulation of the gospel. The problem of human sin, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, the resolution of God's grace. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Look more closely at the text. Uh, Through Nathan, uh, God reminds David that you despised my word, David. You despised the word of the Lord. Not only that, you despised the Lord of the word. You despised me, God is saying through Nathan. The word for despised is beza. It's a Hebrew word. Say it with me. Ready? Beza. Now you know a Hebrew word. It means to accord Uh, little value or worth to someone or something. It's the same word used when Goliath looked on David. It says Goliath despised David. And then 
David's wife, Michael, when David was dancing half naked before the Lord, it says Michael, his wife, despised David because he was acting like an idiot from her perspective. The same way that Goliath and Michael despised David, David despised the word of God and God. And what does God do? He sends Nathan to David. If Tony the Tiger were here, he would say, that's grace. It's grace. David has consequences for his sin, no doubt. But he experiences a lot of grace. I want you to look at the end of that grace chapter, 2 Samuel 12. It doesn't get a whole lot of press, those last few verses, 24 to 31. It reminds me of John 1.16, which says, Out of the fullness of God we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what happens to David in the, at the end of chapter uh, 12, verses 24 to 30. First of all, uh, in verses 24 to 26, uh, Bathsheba and David, this couple whose initial coming together was adulterous, have another child. And God names him Jedediah which means love of the Lord. A couple who's coming together was sinful and adulterous, has another child, and he's loved by God. Grace upon grace upon grace. And then look at the next section. David, as we said, is bored in his boxers, hanging out at the palace when he should be going off at war. His buddy and commander of the army, Joab, is out fighting David's battles, and he's winning. And Joab's about to take the city of Rabbah, which is the the palace, uh, the royal city of the Ammonites. But Joab knows that if he finishes the battle and wins the battle, the city will be named after him, not David, the king. And so Joab sends word to David, the king. He says, hey, David, I pretty much won the battle, but just show up. Get your armor on, come to the battle, so that when we win, the city will be named after you. Not me, man. A friend like that is a grace upon grace upon grace. And then the last section. Good old rusty David who hasn't picked up a sword or a spear in at least nine months. He's got a bit of a belly to show for it. (laughs) He puts the armor back on, picks up his sword and his bow, and goes out to the battle, and guess what? He still got it. Grace upon grace upon grace. And perhaps the most gracious grace of all is that David primarily is not known for that horrific headline, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David is mostly known in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. Grace upon grace. Upon grace, a man whose poetic prayers called the Psalms have inspired billions of people throughout the ages and in all places. Grace upon grace upon grace. Here's what I want you to know. If you find yourself stuck in a spiritual slump, God has not abandoned you. He will, in his grace, because of his love for you, 
send to you a Nathan. And that Nathan may come in the form of an actual person who confronts you in love. It may come in the form of a sermon like this one. It may come in the form of a song or a piece of art or a book. It may come in the form of a vision or a dream or an extravagantly generous gift that someone gives you. I don't know how it will come, but make no mistake about it. If you are in a slump, you need a force of grace outside of you to get you back on a streak again. You need a Nathan. And I know God well enough, even if I don't know you, to know that he will send to you a Nathan. He did it to Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, as I said, had lots of slumps in life more than baseball. He was an alcoholic, a womanizer. He was practically on his deathbed with liver disease from drinking. And God sent Nathan to Mickey Mantle in the form of Bobby Richardson, a former teammate of Mickey Mantle and Christian who led Mickey Mantle to the Lord in that room. Grace upon grace upon grace. When my son was uh, seven, he played uh, coach pitch baseball which is actually machine pitch. I don't know why they call it coach pitch. It's a machine that pitches the ball uh, at the same speed in the same spot every time. So kids just kind of step up there like my son, Zach. You don't even have to try. The ball just comes the same speed, same place every time. You just crush it. He was a good hitter in coach pitch. But then at the age of eight, he went up to kid pitch. And kids don't pitch the ball in the same spot every time. They throw the ball all over the place, mostly at you. And the first game of the season, twice in the same game, Zach got hit with a pitch. And so the rest of the season, let's say this is home plate. Here's how Zach bat as the pitch was coming in. He was going like that. He was just bailing out. You can't hit a ball over here if you're out here. And I would yell you know, coaching tips. I wasn't yelling at him, okay? I wasn't one of those parents. I don't think. But I would give him tips. Zach, hang in there. The ball won't hurt if if it hits you. Just hang in there. Trust me, it won't hurt. Well, he didn't buy it. And the whole season, I watched my son struggle, bailing out. I don't think he got a hit the rest of the season. I don't think he even got a foul tip. I remember thinking to myself, I wish, I wish I could jump into his body and do for him what he can't do for himself to get him out of a slump and back on a streak. But I couldn't. But Jesus could. God saw the human race stuck in a spiritual slump that we could not get out of. And he, through Christ, jumped into our body, into flesh, blood, and bone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What am I saying? I'm saying the Lord did not only send Nathan to David, the Lord sent Jesus to us. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be Frankie Robinson had a great rookie season. 
His second season, he went over 20 and thought he would never hit the ball again. But he did. Going through the slump, he actually said, made him better as a player than ever before. The slump can actually make you better if you work through it. And as you know, Frank Robinson made the Baseball Hall of Fame. David, the slumper, got back on a streak, and he made the Hall of Fame too. We call it the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11. There's a whole list of good ball players. There's Abraham, there's, there's Noah, there's Moses, and there's David, who by the grace of God got out of the slump and back on a streak. But before he was able to get back on a streak again, he had to admit the slump. You've got to admit the slump to get back on a streak. You've got to name it. And we're either going into a slump, we're in a slump, or we're coming out of a slump. All of us. I talked to a 70-something-year-old person in this community who's a leader. You all would know him if I said his name, not in our church. And he confessed to me over breakfast, my love for Christ has plateaued. I don't know that I want to read the Bible or pray anymore. I'm just, I'm just stuck. None of us are immune to the slump. But all of us have access to the grace that gets us out of it. So here's how I want to end. I want us to end this amazing grace series on our knees. If we could. And this may not be for everybody. Uh, I want us to close at the altar. I want you to imagine God's grace as a shower head pouring out grace. And imagine that God's shower head is pouring out grace at the altar, which is where he often pours it out. It will benefit us in no way. We'll stay dry, spiritually dry, unless we come under the shower head. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I know some of you physically may not be able to. If it's physical, stay where you are, kneel where you are, whatever. Talk to God. I hate when pastors give long, manipulative altar calls and make people feel guilted into coming. Then they come, they don't even realize why. So I'm not going to do that. But something happens when we stand up in the community of brothers and sisters and take off the I've got it all together mask and put ourselves on our knees in a position of humility under the fount of God's grace and say, I need your grace to get me out of this slump and back on the streak again. And maybe you want to come and pray for someone else you know who is stuck in the spiritual slump. You want to pray by proxy. Come to the altar. Put yourself under the shower head. First step is admitting you're in a slump and then access the grace to get out of it. Let's pray. So it wasn't long ago when I found myself stuck in a spiritual slump and God led me, I believe, to Psalm 103, a psalm of David. David was an old man when he wrote that psalm, having come through streaks and slumps and streaks and slumps. And then he wrote these words that were a bomb in the Gilead of my soul. And I hope for you as well. He wrote, praise the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases, who redeems our life 
from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion, who satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with love. He will not always treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my God.